0: Welcome back to Mosaic, the podcast from Education Development Center. Mosaic is a place to explore pressing challenges in education, health, and economic opportunity around the world. I'm Burke senior writer at EDC. Prisons are not often thought of as places of learning, but when people reenter society after serving time, it is critical that they have the skills they need to create a better life for themselves. Could STEM learning provide that boost? And if STEM opportunities are more plentiful for people who are incarcerated, how might that also benefit STEM industries and society at large? My guests today are Stan Andres and Eden Battersher. Stan is an assistant professor at Howard University College of Medicine, as well as the executive director of Prison to Professionals, an organization that seeks to change the lives of people with criminal convictions through advocacy, mentoring, and policy change. Eden is a senior research scientist and principal investigator at EDC, whose recent work has focused on racial justice and equity, especially through expanding access to mathematics. Together, they're working on a project called STEM Opportunities in Prison Settings, or STEM Ops, that seeks to increase access to STEM opportunities for people who are or have been incarcerated. So Eden and Stan, thanks for joining me today to talk about uh, the issue of STEM education in prisons, as well as for people who have been incarcerated. I wanted to start though with your own stories about how you came to this work, as I know that the issue of criminal justice is deeply personal for both of you. Um, So Stan, let's start with you. Can you describe your path to becoming a professor of medicine at Howard University?
1: Sure, and I wanna first uh, thank you for inviting me to this conversation. My path was quite non-traditional. I am a formerly incarcerated person with three felony convictions who was sentenced to 10 years in prison as a prior and persistent career criminal. And in that sentencing, I had a prosecuting attorney telling me that I had no hope for changing the decisions that I had been making up until that time and the prosecutor was actually pushing to send me away for life. I'm now an endocrinologist, scientist, and professor at Howard University College of Medicine, as well as formerly a professor at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, and a visiting professor at Georgetown University Medical Center. So I've I've clearly changed a little bit Growing up in in Ferguson, Missouri in the North St. Louis area, I got involved in making a lot of poor decisions at a very young age. I started selling drugs before I was even a teenager. I was arrested for the first time at 15. I found myself in the juvenile system. I continued to make poor decisions until I was sitting in that courtroom in my early 20s when I was sitting in that courtroom and the judge sentenced me to that 10 years, it was almost as if it was this out-of-body experience where I was looking down at myself and hearing the words coming out of her mouth. It was almost unbelievable. When I finally came back to one of the first things that I asked the judge was if I could go give my mother, who was hysterically crying at this point, a hug before I went off and started my 10-year sentence. And the judge denied me the opportunity to give my mother one last hug Uh, before I went away. And it was there that, you know, it really started to sink in that I was no longer seen as a person. I was no longer seen as a human being. That has a huge, huge psychological and emotional weight to it. And so I went into my incarceration very much feeling just as this prosecutor had painted this Picasso picture of me being this dangerous threat to society. I went into prison feeling that way. I'm now a professor where I work with individuals who are working to become medical students and physicians and scientists. It's gonna be another 16 years before we consider them career professionals, yet this prosecutor, yet the system considered me a career criminal in my early 20s. It took a lot of reversing that thinking. Uh, and I was fortunate enough to have this mentor step into my life that helped me in that process. This person invested in my potential. He invested in me. He saw something that I didn't see in myself, and he helped me get to this point. That tie with my father, who ended up losing his battle with type 2 diabetes over the course of two years while I was incarcerated, uh, led me into wanting to learn more about that disease and eventually led me down the career path that I'm on now. When it was time for me to come home, I applied to many, many different places. I was rejected from every single one except for uh, where this mentor was on the admissions committee at St. Louis University. I got into St. Louis University, completed my MBA and PhD in four years at the top of my class, and it was, the rest was history from there.
0: Wow. Well, that is certainly a very powerful story, Stan. Thanks for sharing it. And also, congratulations on all of your professional success. Eden, I'd like to turn to you now. What are the experiences that have shaped your own views on the issue of STEM education and criminal justice?
2: I come from a very different experience than than Stan. I was on the other side. When I was 22, just after college, I had moved down to the DC area with my roommate, and we were we were very close, and we looked out for each other. She was very safety conscious, and she went out to a study session one night. It was a Monday night. And a little after 10, probably 10.30, I heard her trigger her alarm, you know, when you lock the door, that sound that car makes. And it was not much later than that, that I heard her scream quite loudly, help me. And then I heard two very loud noises. I didn't know what was going on. I couldn't process. I ran to the balcony. I, I looked down. She was on her back in the parking lot. And I couldn't actually kind of process what was going on. Um, until I got into an elevator um, with actually a, a priest who was going down as well, and he said a girl in the parking lot's been shot. And you know, I testified in their case. One man pled guilty; the other pled not guilty, and they were sentenced to five back-to-back life sentences. It's it's hard for me to think about them not having to go to prison for what they had done. But if that's all I focused on, uh, especially when I think about Mary, who was really working for social change and voice of populations who are underserved. I think I would be doing her memory a disservice if that's where I stopped. I recognize these are two men who made a terrible choice one night. And that night, several precious families were destroyed, not just Mary's. And the reality is so many systems were implicated in that Event cycles of poverty, of treating drug use as a crime versus an illness, of our school to prison pipeline, systemic racism, the criminal justice system, how we support reentry. All of those are implicated the minute you start to understand the context in which these two men live. Stan talked about mentorship. One of these men was in his 40s, previously incarcerated on drug charges. And I think about had this man received an education in prison, had received the mental health support for his drug use that he needed supported in re-entry. Had we owned the fact that we could have helped, this man could have been a positive mentor in this younger man's life. And because of the systems that we let stay the way they are, we removed that opportunity from this man, from both of these men, and I, I seriously believe that had the systems been changed, and particularly education and mental health support been central, my roommate would be alive.
0: Thanks for sharing that story, Eden. I know it must have been a really difficult for you to talk about, and I think it's really clear that both of you bring a deep commitment to the work that you're doing. So let's, let's turn to that work. I'd like to talk about two issues that you're addressing, but ones that are not often connected to each other, the school to prison pipeline and the STEM career pipeline. How do you see those two pipelines as related?
1: This STEM and, and the school-to-prison pipeline are often seen as, as polar opposites of each other, where STEM has been reserved for people who are supposed to be highly intelligent, or STEM has been reserved for certain groups of people, and education itself has been reserved for certain groups of people. And whereas in, you know, in, in the school-to-prison pipeline is also reserved, for a certain group of people. And, and, you know, my personal experience in terms of, of the school to prison pipeline, you know, from a very young age, as I mentioned, I was involved in making some of these types of decisions, but also at a very young age, I was being sent to detention and suspension at a much higher rate than some of my peers that didn't look like me. And, you know, I was being led in this direction without even me really knowing that I was being led in this direction, that I was that I belonged more on this path, the school to prison pipeline, as opposed to a path into a STEM career.
2: If we focus on STEM for just a moment, we have 2.4 million unfilled jobs, roughly in STEM, uh, over the last three decades. 80% growth. I mean, so few career opportunities have that kind of growth. And if you're focusing particularly on computers, as you can imagine, it's it's over 300%. That's huge growth. But what's happened at the same time that this STEM boom has been happening? Incarceration over roughly the same time has grown by over 500%. So STEM is growing by 80%. Incarceration by 500%. Crime is not changing significantly and violent crimes are decreasing. So how is that possible? And I think it when you look at our society, it's not a mistake that this rate of incarceration really, really started to happen on the heels of the civil rights movement. And that the population that's overrepresented in prison is the same population that is underrepresented in STEM. Stan mentioned false narratives about, you know, who can do STEM. And that is really because our preparation systems are deeply, deeply flawed, more flawed for underserved populations. They have to navigate systems that weren't designed for them, that were actually designed to disempower them. We can barely see how we maintain and perpetuate these systems. So what we see playing out in STEM is precisely the same as what we're seeing playing out in incarceration. It's just we're just, the focus is on different populations. It is only in recognizing how they are connected that we're really gonna be able to tackle the foundational problem itself.
0: So I'd like to learn a little bit more about what opportunities currently exist for people who, who are incarcerated in terms of STEM learning. What types of programs are even available for people who might be interested in STEM but, you know, happen to be behind bars?
1: So that's a great question. And, and the reality is that many programs across the country are not offering STEM within their curriculum. There's, there's about 67 Second Chance Pell sites. If you look at those sites, and I've, I, I've you know examined their makeup and curriculum, there isn't a large portion of them that are offering STEM curriculum, because STEM curriculum, again, has those things associated with it that Eden and I just mentioned. And then additionally, uh, there are some additional challenges to offer, say, biology, where you're dissecting a frog inside prison, or chemistry, where you have to bring in chemicals Inside prison. I'll talk a little bit about my program. So, I'm the executive director of Prison to Professionals, and we work to help individuals pursue higher education and employment opportunities, particularly focused on STEM careers. Uh, in 2019, we had over 400 applications to our program, and about 120 or so start our program. About 60 to 70% of the people that go through our program are interested in STEM. But, the, but what needs to be understood is, you know, from the data from our program, from the 400 plus people that apply per year, there's a deep desire for them to pursue those types of careers. Yet the directors of different prison education programs often don't include STEM education. And that's a problem that needs to be addressed. We need to be providing opportunities for what people are interested in. And, you know, as Eden also mentioned, there's a pipeline that needs to be filled in terms of job opportunities that are open in STEM and individuals who need jobs. These are people that need jobs when they come home and there's an abundance of jobs. Why not connect the two? And and in terms of barriers, as Eden mentioned, after the civil rights movement, there was this political push to criminalize certain groups of people, even more so than what has been historically done. One of the particular policies was the 1994 Clinton crime bill. So that did a lot of things to increase the prison population. But one of the key things that some people don't necessarily realize is that it removed Pell Grants from prison. Uh, Prior to 1994, there were people in prison that were getting bachelor's degrees, master's degrees, even doctorate degrees while they were in prison. And then almost overnight in 1994, when this bill passed, it's gone. It's been taken away from you. Your opportunity has been taken away from you. The ability to fruitfully and gainfully have this rehabilitative experience has been taken away from you. And so we are fighting to bring Pell Grants back to prison institutions. Before 1994, there were on the range of several hundred colleges and universities in prison offering college education. After 94, there was literally just a handful. And now there's there's a little bit of a ramp up due to Second Chance Pell, but with this type of legislation, it would open the door for literally tens of thousands of individuals to have this transformative experience of higher education.
0: So I want to stay with that for, for a moment. Um, you were talking about the transformational uh, nature of higher education. What is it specifically about STEM and access to STEM learning opportunities that you think is so important for people who who are incarcerated or who have been incarcerated?
2: First, it's really important to understand that on re-entry, you're not done. There are documented upwards of 30,000 what we call collateral consequences of being in prison. So this is having to disclose just because you're asked your criminal convictions on job applications, on college applications, or being blocked from federal funds for education. And These obstacles interfere with your ability to find housing, to find a paying job, to find a living wage job. And so STEM is one important area where, in fact, you can find jobs, as Stan mentioned. You actually can receive a living wage. The the wages are 20 to 40 percent higher in STEM fields, regardless of your education background than they are in non-STEM fields it's also things like many people who are incarcerated because of the obstacles want to pursue entrepreneurship for example entrepreneurship has no obstacles and the creativity and experience and compassion of people who leave prison make them ideal entrepreneurs and stem education is actually really critical to being successful there and understanding math, math and data literacy are critical to coming out and understanding what is going on in our society.
1: That actually ties into something that uh, I want to mention, and we need to have formerly incarcerated people in positions of leadership. We need to have formerly incarcerated people in positions of leadership in STEM. We need to have them in leadership in these programs, uh, and we need folks who've been through the system pursuing higher degrees and and moving into positions of resources and power to help impact change. There's a saying by an individual named Glenn Martin, those closest to the problem are closest to the solution, yet furthest from resources and power. That is a systematic thing. We need to change that. Uh, that's part of what my organization is doing. And that's part of what the effort that Eden and I are part of doing is looking to bring resources and power to people who have been impacted by the system and putting them in positions of leadership. We need to overwhelm the system in that regard. And, you know, what Eden was explaining, we, we can work to remedy, remedy that if we had people who were formerly incarcerated that were helping to make the decisions on how we help individuals on the inside.
0: So I invited both of you on today, I mean, probably because I, I think this issue is really interesting. And I mean, you've shared some compelling stories about why you do the work, but you also are working together on an NSF funded project called STEM Ops that is directly addressing some of the issues we've been talking about. What are you hoping to achieve through STEM Ops?
2: What are we not hoping to achieve? Oh my goodness. Our our vision is really about making STEM education in prison and after commonplace, rigorous, and accessible. Everybody can do um, can do STEM. The reality is, as we've talked already, there are so many systems that are implicated. What it's really going to take, as Stan was starting to highlight, is that we have to bring people together with different experiences and different Perspectives. And one of the nice things about STEM Ops is it does bring together grassroots organizations, college in prison programs, nonprofit organizations, previously incarcerated leaders. We're all coming together because we understand that it's going to be our collective knowledge and experience and looking at things from multiple perspectives that is going to give us the most hope for. Tackling these challenges. You know, as an NSF grant, I certainly want to acknowledge and thank NSF for funding it, but they also were requiring this kind of collective work because they understand that none of these challenges are going to be solved individually.
0: And then finally, I mean, I'd be remiss if I didn't sort of acknowledge the time that we're living in. You know, we're not only just living through a pandemic. But the issues of racial justice, mass incarceration of black men, and police brutality have also been at the center of protest sweep in the US. So, how does your work fit into that context that we're living through right now?
1: So, I can say that I wake up and I'm dismantling structural racism at 4 a.m. every single morning. It's my normal work that I do through the Prison to Professionals program. We work to dismantle these systems from a ground level and you know we've been strategically working and thinking on what we can do in this moment and we my team and i feel that we really need to step on the gas in this moment you know we are on the brink of a revolution is 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 what this what this feels like i was just recently invited to go give a talk to imperial college in London, about Black Lives Matter and structural racism in the UK. We're seeing protests going on in places like Australia and all over Europe. And this is not just a United States thing anymore. And that really makes it feel like we're on the brink of something uh, that we haven't seen before. And we really need to push our hardest at this time.
0: And Eden, what about for you?
2: the us was really it was founded fundamentally on subjugation. you know we want to talk about it as founded as the land of the free. but it was actually founded on subjugation of populations. as laws changed, that subjugation took very very different forms. as we get rid of slavery, we bring in jim crow, right? and we bring in segregation. as we get rid of segregation, we bring in a different kind of jim crow. Every time we have to change a system of subjugation, because we're not looking at our history and how we've been operating and our mindsets towards individuals, we find a way to create a new system that does the exact same thing. And I see in all these protests, there is this call to look at our systems critically. And if we are reexamining that, The work around incarceration is critically tied to that because it has been a tool used quite explicitly to maintain our systems of subjugation.
0: Well, we certainly have more work to do, but it feels like we're at a point now where we're finally able to make some progress on some of these issues. Stan and Eden, I really wanted to thank you for coming on the podcast today and discussing STEM ops. Good luck with that work.
2: Thank you, Bert.
1: Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to Mosaic. To learn more about EDC's work in STEM education, or to read more about the STEM
1: Ops project, visit us online at edc.org.